Welcome to Stock in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment and also apparently do breaking news, as we will just now, even though we won't break it. I'm one of your co-hosts, Eitan, and I'm joined as always by Carl. Carl, how are you doing? Apart from, I imagine, I don't know if gushing is the word, but feeling vindicated because you just got a, an app notification that says that Netflix is down 20% after their earnings today. <laughs> You know, I should have. We should have put some money where our mouth was with our Netflix hypothesis here. I, I certainly didn't. I don't think you shorted Netflix, but yeah, I didn't. That is true. So, yeah, let me tell you a little bit about it because again, it, this is so early that uh, news is still coming out. The the conference with Reed Hastings and Ted are is still going. But the the TLDR is that Netflix is down 20%. They grew um, 8 million subscribers this quarter, which, which was right on line with what the, the street expected. They beat on revenue and profit, but they announced that they expect the growth in this following quarter to, to be just 2.5 million globally versus, I think, almost 7 that the street expected. Yeah. So, like, 30%. And... For me, yeah, the interesting part is always that these numbers are, of course, leading indicators because this is management. They are now three weeks into the quarter and they know their forecast internally and and they see how things are going to happen. But probably the most interesting part for me is that this is, I think my first reaction is that these are a reflection of how strong they think their original mm-hmm. um, portfolio is going to be for this quarter. I agree. I think... It is wild that they lost two years of market valuation increases in one earnings call. So it's two years. Yeah. Wait, it's, wait. It's l- two, lower. Th- uh, okay. Say what you're gonna say, but then when I blow your mind even more. Okay. Continue. Yes. It's lower than it has been since I think March 2020. At this point, but what are you gonna add to this? When do you think was the first time that they hit the price where they are right now, which is $408 per share? They hit it in June 2018. So if you bought at the peak of Netflix in June 2018, three and a half years ago, you would be flat today. Oof. Well, that's not going to help during trading tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw the two years and then I went online and then I saw this peak. I was like, oh, wait, they hit. They're lower than they were in June 2018. It's not good. Look, we call ourselves very bearish on Netflix here. That is (laughs) one of our predominant philosophies on this show. But I don't think we're bearish on Netflix because it's any better or worse from an entertainment company perspective than anything else. I think that this is a symptom of we're finally seeing post.com VC-backed companies reach a maturity state where they've saturated a market and are becoming a dominant player or the dominant player. And they have to transition into being a legacy business built on streamlining their operations and moving incrementally rather than blowing up the industry that they now are. So, so much of this is the valuation of Netflix is insanely high just because people had inflated expectations built on the backs of what that, like, 
what the business was and how it came to be. But especially in this overly saturated, when you have such an overly concentrated market, they're not going to keep growing. Like two and a half million people is not that many people in the grand scheme of their global TAM that they claim to have, which is like everyone with a broadband subscription. Like, yeah, I, I think this is just a reckoning with the fact that their expectations have been too inflated for the last few years. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, when we say we are very bearish on Netflix, I think that's very, you know, uh, not eye-catching, but it's like a headline. But I think it's exactly what you said. We were bearish on the on the trajectory that some of the business fundamentals had. No. Even if at a high level, you just looked at revenue and cost and how they were growing together and how, you know, the thesis of our bearishness has always been that this, that they couldn't keep the same level of spend in originals in order to if not grow into new accounts, at least in order to basically make churn zero. And their original structure was just not doing that. It wasn't helping with retention. Um, And the other thing that they announced last week that I don't know if you saw is that they are increasing the price of their base plan in the US to $50.99, which means Netflix is officially more expensive than HBO Max. They are the most expensive streaming service now. And Netflix is now like reaching the point where it's no longer the public utility that it was for 10 years, where everyone either used it or had access to it. There's so much competition. There's much better original content and library content out there for the most part. And I think they're just going to have to mature into being in the same place everyone else is with their subscription services, which is... Most people have one or two they stay subscribed to, and then the rest they churn in and out of, depending on what they want to watch. That's just reality yeah. in a late stage business, and they're not going to keep for hundred like hundred percent retention. Yeah, and I think that's where they are, and it's also one of those points that you know, especially in markets like the U.S. or Western Europe or developed markets, where the friction to change services, like you were saying, is not mm-hmm. that high. It's actually very easy to just be like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Content is king. Yeah. And they are facing some of the same issues that Disney Plus is facing. Right? It's like Disney Plus really forgot about their content. And it's happening now with Boba Fett. And it's like, yeah, and you're not growing. And HBO Max is doing great. And tease to one of my, one of my uh, predictions, I think Paramount Plus is going to do very well. So, like, this is a moment where it's it's the things that help Netflix at the beginning or the algorithm or moving fast or the infrastructure or whatever, those are not advantages anymore. Like, that is not a moat. Discovery algorithms don't help when you have no content to discover anymore that really fits. Yeah. it's uh, Yeah, there are two things that I also wanted to show that were interesting as I'm watching in the news come out in Twitter. One is, it's kind of the first time that they acknowledge competition at all. They had this line when talking about other streamers that's like, while this added competition may be affecting our marginal growth some, you know, dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. Like, even that, even if that seems very subdued, you know, Netflix has always been the, you know, we compete against sleep and we compete against Fortnite. Yeah. It's like, oh, no, there is competition. Um, which, <laughs> yeah, I mean, makes sense. It makes sense. It's just 
the Netflix hype is partly kind of one of the very first salvos in the entry of technology into media as far as tech and media combining into one super conglomerate Mm -hmm. as far as a market goes. And I think so many people have the same like web 2.0 mindset, of, which is the same as the web 3 mindset, which I will probably talk about in a little bit. But it's the same mindset of, oh, I'm the only person that's ever thought about it with this new framework. So this problem is going to be fixed by me. Instead of just realizing that there's a way to enter and disrupt a market with new technology, but then... If you don't keep evolving and keep being the best at that, or make plays to establish yourself in the legacy market, you're not going to stick around, and you're not going to necessarily keep evolving at this massive, massive pace. Like Netflix didn't mm-hmm. invent an industry; they just subverted the technology expectations of cable companies and people like AT and T of how TV worked, and is they're now delivering content in a different way. But now everyone is, so it doesn't matter as much. Yeah. Can you tell that the only book that I, I have ever liked from business school was The Innovator's Dilemma, and I didn't even read it in business school? <laughs> I, I can't imagine. <laughs> uh, yeah, speaking of which, I think we've talked about how I'm rereading uh, the other Clayton masterpiece around how will you measure your life. But speaking of, you mentioned, and we'll talk about it probably next week because this is just developing, is speaking of the mergers and acquisitions that you mentioned, um, mm-hmm. To, uh, Monday, Monday, Tuesday, it was announced that Microsoft is acquiring Activision Blizzard for $70 billion in pure, sweet cash. An all-cash deal. Activision Blizzard, probably the biggest still kind of gaming studio, maybe one or second, and I'm not sure exactly how they break out today with the Fortnites of the world, but... Mm-hmm. You know, they started like StarCraft, Diablo, Warcraft. Now they are the heads of Overcraft and Call of Duty, Overwatch, sorry, like, and a lot of very interesting things. They've been involved in like serious culture, cultural issues for the past couple of years around, um, you know, sexual harassment, racism, yeah. and stuff. So it's going to be interesting how uh, Microsoft navigates through this. But what was your. What are your thoughts now a couple of days removed, at least mm-hmm. from the announcement? Yeah, I I mean, neither you or I are true gamers, so actually trying to wade into the specifics of the market here might get tricky. Um, but to my understanding, my understanding is very similar to yours, that Activision Blizzard is one of the few, or was one of the few, major video game creators, studios, publishers that did not was not completely owned by another in, institution that made them vertically integrated. So something like Naughty Dog is owned by PlayStation. Mm-hmm. You have uh, what is it? Three four three whatever. Bungie Bungie was purchased by Microsoft. Microsoft made three four three. They like like go of Bungie. This is it's there's a whole thing. But Bungie Microsoft was another version of this where they brought in like the makers of the most popular game for their console and brought it in house. So Activision Blizzard, they make Call of Duty, they make anything under the Blizzard umbrella, including the anything with craft in the name. That's I guess not Minecraft, but Microsoft also owns Minecraft, so they're good to go. Synergies. So now, now, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's why they bought it. To make it easier. Warcraft All the crafts in one book. It's like the X-Men coming home to Marvel the 
the crafts are coming home to Microsoft. Ugh. But with that, so you have like Activision Blizzard, you have EA, which is still kind of the big big boy. You have Ubisoft. Then, like you said, you have Epic as kind of another entrance entrant with Fortnite. The thing about Epic and Valve is that they also own massive distribution platforms, but don't necessarily... And they also have massive games for those platforms, but it depends on which day what their business priority is. So it's a very concentrated market, but more and more the overall creative talent and publishing of these games is being in-housed either into video game console and distribution companies like Sony and Microsoft, or... Mm -hmm video game distribution companies like Epic and Valve that also might dabble in consoles too. So everything's being locked up and there's no independent content creators that are at that scale. Yeah. I think this is this is one of those that were exactly aligned. We haven't talked about this, so this is not rehearsed, but that is exactly what I thought. That just this type of content creator creation just makes it it's stopping to make sense to be independent and it's looking to be integrated either vertically or horizontally. Yeah. And every one of these companies needs to have kind of an outlet into how to leverage some of these assets outside of just that. So with Microsoft, you know, when you think of productivity and leisure, mm-hmm. Microsoft has always been very much office and uh, cloud, enterprise, whatever. And they have Xbox and very, very strong with Xbox, including subscription services, the Game yeah. Pass, um, they're probably the best ones in those types of services. But, for example, they don't have a studio, right? They don't have a YouTube. They don't have a, an Apple TV. That's not what they do. They're not worried about that. However, they are interested in this leisure side, which they do via gaming. When you look at some of these other tech companies, again, they all have kind of this outlet where, where the synergy comes in. And then on the other side, you have, like you were saying, Sony. Sony might not be a deep tech company today, but it has a movie studio. So like the way the the way gaming kind of has that outlet, they might have been terrible at doing this, and who knows what's going to happen with Uncharted? Well, I, I guess I think mm-hmm. we know what's going to happen with Uncharted, but like it's still they're still in a position where the gaming studio or the gaming platform, PlayStation, not the hardware, but the, yeah. all of the you you mentioned Naughty Dog, the Santa Monica studio, all of these other things have an outlet that is not just gaming. Correct. And then it's just how it's going to come together. So, yeah, uh, I think you shared a, a tweet. Or was it Kevin from my computer, Kafka, when he's like, everyone is going to talk about the metaverse and forget mm-hmm. about the incredible business that gaming is in general. And it's it's one of those things that is like, yeah, I, I, I see that. They're connected. I agree that it's being overblown because the metaverse doesn't exist today. And having right. a meeting on Zoom when that avatar instead of your face, it, it's not the metaverse. But... Um, yeah, seems like a, I mean, very, very natural move. Mm-hmm. Very natural. It does, especially come into a business in distress from a culture perspective, got the culture, absorb the, the IP and the, the teams, and then it's you pay in cash. Like, pretty good deal for Microsoft, I think. I think they're able to buy while the price is right. Yeah, able to buy at 100 so. 70 billion, Microsoft had 150 billion in cash. And it's wow. already, you know, probably getting closer to $2 trillion company that they could have also used their stock. No problem. So mm-hmm. seems seems like a good good stuff. Well done by them. Agreed. 
Yeah, well, I also wanted to take offense or take issue with your characterization okay. of Microsoft not having a major content studio. I would like to remind you that LinkedIn Learning is part of the Microsoft <laughs> family. So I would okay. implore you, you to offended? consider that. Are you offended if I ask what is LinkedIn Learning? Oh, it's their it's Microsoft's flagship streaming service, which is a series of educational professional videos on LinkedIn. So imagine imagine corporate training, but you pay for it and it's on LinkedIn. So is this like a competitor to like Salesforce Plus? The one we talked about? <laughs> it's not actually a competitor to Salesforce Plus because Salesforce Plus seems to be striving for entertainment value. Oh, really? It's, huh. They said they're going to have like business reality shows. LinkedIn learning seems more like Coursera mixed with TED. But about like Python or something. It seems like stuff you can truly just get on YouTube, but like there's a corporate chain to it and you can get a little... Do you want you to pay for? Yeah. Wow. So well, apologies hey, for the offense. That is... Yeah. The LinkedIn learning franchise is really going to be taking over Marvel here in the next few years. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Blink and you'll miss their their rise. Um, <laughs> before before just moving for the takes, I'm gonna have so much to talk about this next week. But this week is Sundance, and as someone who is not going to the movie theater for a little bit, it couldn't land at a perfect time. They moved it completely virtually, so for twenty bucks you could access any screen that you wanted. The one that I wanted the most was the worst person in the world because it would have been twenty dollars mm-hmm. for me and Ariella to be able to watch it. They have this thing that the way it works is if you buy for that premiere, there's a specific time where it happens and you have three hours to watch. Or yeah. you can buy for a, what they call a second screening where you have 20 hours to watch. And the second screening was sold out. And the premiere, it was I think it started at like 11.45 p.m. my time mm-hmm. today. So I'm not doing that. But I have I have six six movies. And I'll, I'll tell you more about them next week. A very interesting mix of Ariella and my taste. We go for like... We have a, an interesting mix of, you know, very indie that you don't know anything mm-hmm. about, but the plot sounds interesting, to two that have inter- interesting actors that we like, to the two Latin movies that are competing, one from Mexico and one from Chile, with like magical realism. That mm-hmm. sounds great. So just say excited about that. Every night between tomorrow and Tuesday, it's going to be a Sunday, a Sundance night for me, which is uh, nice. pretty great. Yeah. We... Alex and I's taste skews for the most part out of indie. So yeah. as much fun as I've had going to, to Sundance the two years I went, um, even then, like I couldn't really get out of my headspace of, yeah, but I want to see something like a little more established. Like I saw some really great movies there and I saw like the farewell there. I saw some stuff that actually took off, but at the same time, this is probably like a fairly artless corporate basic take, but I don't know. The most fun I, the most excited I was at Sundance is when I met met Steven Soderbergh, who was at a different festival because Sundance was too corporate for him. You know, like that's the most fun I've ever had at Sundance, and that's the experience that I thought was magical. So doing that from home, eh, not for me. <laughs> and going to a, another theater to do it, I could do it if it was the right director. Uh, we are. I don't know if we're going to see anything this weekend. Uh, we saw a rep screening of Zodiac last night, and we're going to see one of oh, yeah. Alex, Alex's favorites, Three Women, on Monday, and we'll see, I think, something else. But we're dwindling down on our movie viewing out 
too right now more just there's also like not that much new that we haven't burned through <laughs> i know and we don't have time to do this this week but i watched uh we texted i watched the tragedy of macbeth i have yeah. thoughts let's save them for next week and i watched yep. matrix i, I watched matrix too them. yeah i oh, okay I thought... one one word because i i i'm curious it's a great wachowski film about the matrix yeah <laughs> it was like what, what was i'm just smiling i had so much fun yeah it's um, not a matrix film but it's no. a really good wachowski film <laughs> yeah i would call it self-aware i would call it yes. self-aware yeah right, that was fun okay yeah let's talk about it next week okay yeah so next week we'll talk matrix we'll talk Macbeth, and we will talk uh have you seen spider-man yet oh no <laughs> okay but I watched a lot of the great British Throwdown, the British competition show about clay making and pottery in the oh, style I of Great British Bake Off. I didn't know that this was a thing. I thought that this was just maybe oh, the, like... Oh, yeah. I thought this was the, Fantastic. like, Mexican translation of Great British Bake Off because it's, like, different phrases in different countries. <laughs> no. Oh, no, you should watch it. <laughs> HBO Max. It's produced by the same production company that makes the Great British Bake Off, but it's an Funny. HBO Max original in the U.S. You should watch it. Yeah. Well, I, I did pay my tithe to the Walt Disney Company and see Spider-Man, and we'll talk about it next week, too. So, Okay, yeah, excited to have one of those review episodes <laughs> next week. Yeah, I guess we could also lump that in with kind of our overall looking back at film discussion. Oh, yeah, that's free. Let's just do it all yeah. movies day, because we're having a very classical breaking news and media business day today. It's great. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. That's a great... A great segue into the... That's what I was trying to tee you up for. <laughs> Perfect. We have each three. You also have three. Ball takes for yep. 2022. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Like we talked about last week, I think we were both pretty pleased with ourselves. So I wonder if we're going to be even bolder this week, this this year. I'm, I'm interested to see how we do. Why didn't you start us off, Carl? I'm curious to see where you go. All right. So I have a take that's not very bold, and then it becomes bold. But we we go for big, bold swings on this show. It's way more fun than, you know, having data to support this. So first one is we're just going to have more and more crypto and Web3 nonsense and hype until somebody does something and regulates it later this year. Oh, so you think the regulation is what's going to... I think the the regulation is the wild swing here. But just... Every single day, there's some new story about how, like, an asset class disappears because of the management or, like, how they, like, shut down the thread. Or there's the crypto.com hack that's all over right now about how people have lost million dollars out of their secure, unhackable crypto wallets. Mm -hmm. So, like, it's reaching a point where these are becoming assets that the government should regulate from a securities perspective to make sure that people aren't getting scammed and that these are valid things to be trading on, which I think kind of deflates the purpose of, of Bitcoin and crypto, which is like, it is this external thing that's immune to regulation. I just, they probably won't come up with a law around this for years. And I'm, I'm sure it'll be like California passes some law. So crypto passes, works differently here and then Europe does something and it's going to be this long 10-year thing 
But I think the ball is going to start rolling this year, and there will be serious talk about it by the end of this year. Hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's very in line with, I think, what we've talked about. And for me, it continues to be, uh, I think, people look back and say, yeah, Web of 2 and the difference is blah, blah. But, you know, I'm a big believer that the market, and I don't mean that in a capitalistic way, but that yeah. sometimes a lot of things are how they are because we found some th- ways that are efficient to do it. That doesn't mean that there are better ways to... Yeah. Like, there's always... Let me rephrase that. We always think that because something... Sorry. We always assume that everything can get better. And that is especially true with mm-hmm. technology, either more efficiently or cheaper or yep. whatever. It's also true that there are things that, you know, are not going to evolve that much. Yeah. And... I think especially for the internet and especially around content, content discovery, it's, and, and I don't mean discovery in the, in the place of like Netflix, you right? And being, having a good yeah. algorithm to show you things, but you deciding I'm going to go to YouTube because I know in YouTube I can find things like mm-hmm. this type of aggregators make a lot of sense, right? It makes sense that there is three chat apps. If there is WhatsApp, there is WeChat and there is iMessage. There is not going to be 700,000 because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to have 700,000 mm-hmm. replications of a ladder that keeps track of these things. It doesn't make sense. So for me, it just goes down to that and being like, some of these things are, if they are not going to be more efficient or cheaper, why would the market follow? And while I agree with a lot of the concepts and the values of decentralization, I, I continue to not see it. Just to say, yeah. I think we've talked about this. Agree. Yeah, from a from a technical perspective, I see why you're bearish on it, and like we're both in total agreement around there are perfect applications for blockchain, and that there are a lot of mm-hmm. imperfect applications that people are trying to craft onto it. I think my I have kind of a even more pessimistic or just sorry I have a even more just pessimistic outlook on this, which is. If I've learned anything from the books of Michael Lewis, it's the general trend in industry and finance is somebody figures out a clever way to make a lot of money. Somebody makes a lot of money. Institutional investors start doing that. And then the second that they start losing money, they figure out ways to shut it down, slow it down, obfuscate the actual transactions so that they can make it a very easy to invest, scalable easy market and that's exactly mm-hmm. what's happening here everyone has a crypto department now everyone's tripling down on on this as an investment class and institutional investors don't want to lose money because something's volatile so they're gonna bend it to their will rather than change their strategies i, I like michael well would wait to bring michael lewis, michael lewis <laughs> of the week. i love that well, the next one, the, the first one that I have, it's staying within the streaming uh, conversation that we had. And it's kind of a bold takes with, within a bold take, which is, mm-hmm. I think this is the, f- the first year that we actually see some like bold innovation in the type of uh, content that is distributed kind of DTC to customers mm-hmm. in a certain package. What I mean by that, I think what Paramount Plus is doing is, is kind of the only one that is pushing things in terms of like, we have streaming with our library, we have originals, you have access to live sports, they have all of the NFL mm-hmm. that CBS has, as well as uh, soccer, 
they have live news, and you have access to your local CVS station. So regardless of how amazing the Paramount Plus originals are, and I, I connected, I think they're going to merge Showtime and Paramount Plus, which doesn't make sense yeah, to separate. Sure. Like those types of things and continue to put in, you know, gaming, what Netflix is trying to do, look for, or some sort of other things like these types of things, I think they're going to bundle. And I don't think they're going to bundle the way people think about bundle, like, oh, uh, yeah. Disney Plus and Hulu and ESPN or just more content together. Or it's, it's, I think it's going to go cross things and become yeah. a little bit, uh, not a little bit, but like, I think there's going to be a strong bet taken by someone. And Paramount Plus, I think is a good example. For example, I don't see how, and this is bold, I'm, I'm talking bold, yeah. right? I think Disney Plus, Disney is going to take a bold action and I think they're going to combine it with Hulu. Yep. And I don't, I don't, I don't think that means they're going to put everything that Hulu has in Disney Plus because of the, the rights and the licensing, but at least all of 20th Century Fox, they're going to make Disney Plus more adult a la star in other places because they are, even though the bundle is a good idea and the bundle is cheaper than Netflix now and HBO yep. Max, it's a lot of friction. Yep. And I think if people, if people can break it up, they're going to break it up to go somewhere else, right? If yep. Paramount Plus is better for kids and they can get blah, like they're going to do that. So I actually think here that volume is could help them. So that's my first one. I think that's a salient point for a lot of reasons. One, there's this idea of a super app, which is kind of a hypothesis in business coming out of trends we saw in China around WeChat, where you just kind of have one app that's your destination for everything. And I think this is kind of a super rapi, app. Hypo- rapi, in, rapi in Latin America. Yes. Yeah. And you, I, we, our evolution as a culture here with all of our technology media project products happens so simultaneously and, or actually it happened on a lot of different trends before coalescing. Whereas a lot of mm-hmm. other countries that didn't have a robust web 1.0 internet infrastructure just kind of skipped ahead to establishing everything yeah. at once and leapfrogged where we're at with how we think about this. So I think from a global perspective, it makes sense for like Disney plus to just make Disney plus Disney plus everywhere and no longer have to worry about having a different product experience in different countries. I also think it makes sense that at this stage, we're no longer trying to figure out how to stream video. Well, anybody can pretty much do that from a technical competency perspective. So yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Yes. You can focus now on building a kitchen sink product that AT&T probably tra- would have tried to do in 2010 and wouldn't have been able to because the technology wasn't there. But now AT&T can merge Discovery Plus with HBO Max, which I or sorry, not AT&T, but you know this merged yeah, company yeah. coming Any, out of AT&T whatever. can <laughs> yeah. take the services, merge them together probably make a nice little deal with AT&T video to have an MVPD option because they still have a corporate interest in it. And then we're done. I think that's a really good point. And I bet somebody's going to take a big action in that direction, at least AT&T or Disney. Yeah. And I really like exactly what you said, like the technology and the differentiators, everyone can do this. Those HBO Max and Prime UI terrible. Sure. But everyone can do streaming. Everyone can get access to, to content and license it. It's still going to be better and it's still very important to the point about Netflix, but you, yeah. there are more levers of differentiation that are needed here. 
one ways different types of content gaming uh, on demand uh, like live stuff or classes or to the point about mvpds but yeah i think this this has to evolve and fast that was my first one what's your second one facebook is going to be less important than ever this year and the metaverse Ooh, isn't going like to save them i like that is that kind of like mic drop all you have yeah. to say is the yeah, it's more just like that downward trend's inc increasing with Facebook. The metaverse is like, if they want to be a corporate software company, which is how they, they're leaning more and more into this corporate tools business that they have between their messenger for work and the mm -hmm. portal and the metaverse, they, Mark couldn't shut up about how cool it is to use a bad virtual whiteboard surrounded by me's. So they're thinking about this in such a like a legacy software company way. And I think that's because that's what they have left as privacy is scooping out customers from, from beneath them. Like Apple and Google and some other firms have managed to kneecap Facebook's targeting and advertising technology. So Facebook has to make money in another way because they can't sell people's data and or they can't sell ads using people's data in the same way anymore. So they don't have a business anymore. They're going to try leaning really hard into this metaverse thing. And they're it's so lame that they're not going to be able to like take Oculus from the ashes and hoist it up further. That's what I think. I like this. Again, we're going for boldness. That's 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 what we do. <laughs> I like that. I think that makes sense. I think I told you, I changed phones a year ago and I never download Facebook. Yeah, same here. It's not a thing. Instagram, same. TikTok, like, completely overtook it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is uh, an N of one, but... Um, yeah, and of course I'm not saying, like, Facebook is going to go out of business here. It's not like I'm saying. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Like it's more just they're going to keep sliding until irrelevance, irrelevancy, and they're not going to have a big year, despite being meta now. I should have just called them meta this whole time. That's my my bad. That right, was what is your despite. number two? <laughs> so my number two is kind of it's it starts being bold, but it's also ending not as bold. And is mm -hmm. that I think this year, so next year in next year's Oscars. Um, I think a, a streaming first slash an original film is going to win, uh, you know, best movie. Yeah. Uh, and I also think it's going to be, we're going to, we're, I think we're going to continue to see the type of deals that Apple TV is doing, where most of the movies are partnerships between actual studios and Apple TV. And they come hand in hand with distribution, like what they're doing with like Killers of the Flower Moon that we've talked about. It's being recorded uh, close yeah. to your hometown. Um, you know, Scorsese, DiCaprio, uh, Jesse Plemons, Robert De Niro. And it was a Paramount movie, got too expensive, DiCaprio wanted to change roles, Apple TV got it, left Paramount to still do distribution. It sounds like it's going to be a similar thing to like the tragedy of Macbeth with, you know, it's it's, it's going to have, it's not going to be two weeks released by Netflix, it's going to have, you know, independent-ish release. Yeah. And then it's going to get to Apple TV. And I think that's going to become more and more the, the, kind of what's going to happen and i think what's going to be what's going to drive that is that 
I think streamers are going to start looking for partners that take on some of the risk. Mm-hmm. And you and I have talked about how theaters are not going away, but theaters are evolving. And theaters, the pandemic made it clear, but theaters need to evolve to play these. They need to get people out, not only because what you can see there, it's an exclusive. Right? Yeah. If Spider-Man was playing in Disney+, Plus, I think people would still have gone out. And... Yeah. And this is just to say, these are going to become more and more complementary mm-hmm. uh, channels, more than just kind of competing with the talent getting angry that is one or not the other. So I think this type of, of figuring out distribution is actually going to make a lot of sense. And yeah. I think what I think the way it reflects is that one of those wins, and it just becomes very normal, and then the transition doesn't feel as abrupt as people not voting for Roma because it was a Netflix movie. Because voters and people can say, like, oh, yeah, this is a Paramount film or co-production. Mm-hmm. And it was in movie theaters for a month and a half or whatever. So, yeah, again, yeah. bold take, but not as bold take at the end. Right. Two two quick responses here. First, I think by the time one of these streaming-only releases wins, it's not going to really even matter. And half the people won't even process it because of the pandemic that we've just been streaming at home anyway. Yeah. So we, there's it's harder to grab onto that. And then the second thing here is I think that point about distribution is really good because I think more and more as a company like Disney starts using flagship Pixar IP to juice Disney Plus signups only, that mm-hmm. creates that creates one to two screens in every multiplex in America that was current previously reserved for turning red where nothing will be playing and it's a dead zone in that year. So that's something where... Yeah, uh, you could put Power of the Dog or Drive My Car in a modern American multiplex in the Midwest or somewhere, but normally wouldn't play it because Disney's no longer controlling the space for every single one. So I think that is an interesting evolution that could happen, for sure. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see if it's your... your, Yeah, the killer of the flower moon is the first one that came to mind. So my last prediction is... Oh, yeah. Streaming. It's not really streaming related. It is very theatrical related. So it's that either Avatar 2 will be insanely profitable and fully established theatrical as like a business that matters. Mm -hmm. Or it's going to be so unprofitable that Disney shuts down Fox as a studio and just like kills it. Oh, I like that second part. That second part is very That's bold. the bold one. Yeah. There's a lot yeah, riding on Avatar 2. Yeah. it's. I mean, it's still insane that it made that much money. There's no reason that that and Titanic should be that high ranking on our list of highest grossing films. And they feel so much different and original and not manufactured compared to the Disney movies that are all populating up there. So that's a big swing, and hopefully that works, and it's like in conversation with the original Avatar or Dune or these big, bold swings that are working, and that keeps boosting the importance of theatrical and that people want to go back. If it doesn't do that, I don't think it's going to hurt theatrical. I think it's theatrical is becoming more sustainable, as we discussed. But I do think that if Disney sees underperformance from an original piece of adult content, or like four quadrant, but skewering more, like... The Avatar for audience is the same as the Marvel audience in, like, yeah. every quadrant. So I think if they see a competing franchise from their stepchild studio 
that spends <laughs> this much money making two films plus two more in theory that are like shooting, they're going to pull the plug on this thing if it doesn't perform well. I don't think they, they release the other three and I think it could get to the point where they just shut Fox down and merge everything into like Searchlight is now part of like the Disney family next to Pixar or whatever and sometimes gets put in theaters. Wow. That's an interesting one because it the, the thing that it made me think, probably the, the Voltaic that I had, but that I was like, ah, oh, this is too niche for a time. I'm going to, I'm not going to count it. Is that Bob Iger comes back to Disney. And that is one where, <laughs> with these types of things, like that seems like a very JPEG decision, right? This one yeah. thing didn't work out. I'm going to make a money decision where the creative is not that important. Mm-hmm. Where, I mean, don't get me wrong. Bob Iger is lauded for the creative decisions, but, I mean, he's a man in in a, in a huge thing, and there's a lot of things that went right that weren't specifically because of him. But right, he seemed, or at least <laughs> communicated, that he cared about these type of creative things, and that he understood that there was a trade-off between them, which also could include not overreacting to one specific movie. But I yeah. like it. We're gonna have to wait <laughs> until December to know how your Baltic does. But yeah. fine. And and honestly, I was guessing, like. It's really probably not a good 2022 prediction because Avatar 3 is already, like, mostly done. They're going to release those two no matter what in some fashion. And even if this flops, they're not going to pull the plug by January 1st of next year. But Avatar 2 comes out this year. I just want to flag that there's a possibility it's a dud and it has disastrous, like, disastrous repercussions for the entire Disney family. Wow. I like that. That's very good. My last one is not Avatar related, and it's one that uh, I thought about last week because I wrote this last week, but I think it's going to come out as very topical, is that I think some of these huge tech companies that have, some of them, $200 billion in cash are going to put it to use. And Microsoft and Blizzard and Activision was one, but do you know that Apple, thanks to 20% that Netflix does today, Apple has more cash than the market cap of Netflix. That's funny. Well, yeah, the market cap yeah. of Netflix after today is 180 billion, and uh-huh. Apple has 200. Okay. Amazon has 85. Google has 150. Like these guys can swallow whoever they want, and that doesn't mean that they like. We've talked about why some of the things don't make sense around you know buying a theater chain or some of the studios no. might not make sense, but. Going back to our point from Microsoft and, and gaming and these integrations, either vertically or horizontally, I think we see more and more consolidation. And and so my bold take is we see one huge one. And mm-hmm. I don't mean like somebody buys CBS or AT&T right. and Discovery combined with uh, whatever, Lionsgate or something else. Yeah. Like I mean 100 plus billion dollar transaction uh, or merger of equals or something like that. On this note, I, I think, absolutely, I think that's going to happen this year. I think somebody's going to try. I think it will probably get through if it's a pure media merger rather, or even even traditional tech. I just don't think it's going to go through with, like, telecom again. I think mm-hmm. AT&T probably closed the door for that culturally, and it didn't work. And regulators are still a little more skeptical of, of that, I would think. But, yeah, I, I, I think it could be interesting on the, on the note about Apple buying Netflix, the one company I've always been intrigued by the possi- possibility of Apple buying 
was Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, I think their their products are That's purely pretty, incompatible. Pretty cool. But yeah. I, I think their ethos as a culture and I guess a company from like product design and what they sell is so similar that it would be a very successful merger culturally. Except, I mean, obviously the the barrier of being global might like working with Japan specifically might might be challenging. But even then, Apple's a massive global company. They spend more than anybody in China. Like I think the cultural gap would be easy to to survive. But they, I love that one. I love that one. I could make it even, let's say, Apple and Nintendo. That's what we're going for. They they buy, like, they're both walled gardens. They both have really good IP that supersedes, weirdly, what the product should be worth. They're both hardware companies at heart. They both super, aggressively super irri- they irritate yeah, customers yeah. with bizarre decisions, but customers just roll with it because you can't get anything else like it anywhere. Very strong brands. Pre, like pretty overlapping design aesthetics if like Nintendo was willing to spend $50 more on every device it would be approaching Apple quality yeah I just think it's a good fit and something like that I would be interested to see like an interesting company like a tech company that also is merging with a company that has a similar ethos and market position in their relative market that's like a dream merger Apple Netflix like would be bizarre and wild i wouldn't count it out but oh hey. i didn't say it because that's part of the ball take oh, i know as an I know. example that like even the biggest yeah. quote unquote as netflix but yeah i think a nintendo i think that one would be great i forget that nintendo is i'm just really impressed with all of your theories this year i think you put more work into them than than I probably did. I really agree with everything you've said and hope that I think it will come true. So we will see. I think we're all bold here and excited to see how the year actually plays out. We will probably be wildly correct and wildly wrong at the same time. Yeah. I loved yours and especially loved when you made minds better by making them more specific or or bolder. So I appreciate that. Hey, that's why we're partners. yeah thanks everyone for listening uh this was a fun one short one but packed and we'll be back next week to talk about kind of looking back to the movies that we liked including that we watched last year but also that we've watched in the last couple of weeks including some so thanks everyone for listening bye